If you've been a Christian for very long, then you probably know that being a Christian for very long can be very difficult. Here in America, when a person first becomes a Christian, there is often a period of time for that person where it's quite easy. You're kind of pushed along by adrenaline, by excitement. And for those of us who grew up in Christian homes, a similar phenomenon can occur. For the first 10 or 15 or 18 years of your life, you have the luxury of safety. And whether it's that, whether it's the luxury of safety or the rush of adrenaline, for many people, the initial phase of being a Christian is fairly easy. But it doesn't stay that way. There comes a season where the Christian life becomes surprisingly difficult. And I'm not just talking about finding it hard to forgive someone or finding it difficult to wake up early enough to spend time reading scripture and praying. I'm talking about when a teenager or a college student or an adult feels the struggle of living a Christian life and that struggle is so intense, you, 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 you know that you're about to either fall away or slip into an innocuous civic religion. Now what we're hearing here at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that part of the reason the Christian life will become at some point extremely difficult, part of the reason is because there is a real supernatural enemy that will assault you. There is more to this world than the natural, the psychological, the sociological. There is more to this world than psychology opens up for us. There are extremely powerful, supernatural forces that oppose the people of God. There are faceless, bloodless, difficult to detect evil entities in this world. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. It was read to us just a few minutes ago. The warfare we're engaged in, you see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule the world in this dark age, against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places. Now, now I know, I, I know, I know that talking like this can sound paranoid and primitive. We're thoroughly modern folk. Here in Harrisonburg. 
We've been taught to see the world through the lens of naturalism. That science, history, sociology, psychology, economics, these can account for it all. In the mid-19th century, in Paris, the famous French poet Charles Baudelaire, he was writing about how modernism was changing the very fabric of Paris. And he wrote the famous line that got picked up um, in, by Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects. The first trick of the devil. Does anybody know it? To convince the world he doesn't exist. Now it's interesting to me that the, the, the person who coined the term modernism commented on this thing that was, Baudelaire coined the term modernism. And he, as he describes what it's doing in Paris, says this. And he puts it in the, the mouth of a character in one of his short stories. That the first trick of the devil is to convince the world he doesn't exist. We live in a society that no longer accepts the idea of supernatural evil. Right. Marx says evil is in power structures. Freud says it's, it's somehow in our id. We've got all of these ways of explaining evil off. We live in a world where belief in the devil has lost plausibility. Whoever today feels threatened by the devil or believes in his fangs, we think is probably in the fangs of some fanatical sect. Talking about the devil today is irrational. It's unscientific. And this is one of the big differences between the Christian view of the world and, frankly speaking, the academic view of the world, the modern view of the world. The Christian view of the world is that there are shadowy forces in our world, evil powers that are supernatural, and we cannot explain them away as merely the ethos of an institution. We can't explain them away as merely cultural attitudes. And a significant reason that the Christian life gets so difficult at some point in time for every Christian is because these supernatural enemies attack Christians. We don't know exactly what they are. There's a lot of craziness, and you can sell a lot of books if you try to say things about exactly what they are. But we do recognize them through their functions. They are dehumanizing. They are death dealers. They alienate. So here at the end of Ephesians, God is telling us that if we're going to live the Christian life, we need a sober, realistic assessment both of the struggle we're going to face and of the resources that are available to us for that struggle. So that's what we're going to talk about. Two things. First, let's see how Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 20 describes the struggle that Christians at some point in life will face. And then we'll talk about the resources that are given to us in this passage for this very intense struggle. First of all, look at verse 12. The warfare we're engaged in. That's the translation that was read to us a little earlier. Many of your translations, if you have a Bible with you, or if you memorize this, it might say, we do not wrestle 
against flesh and blood. That word wrestle, it's a word that describes close, difficult, intense, hand-to-hand combat. If you're a Christian, there will come a point when walking worthily of God is a profound struggle that goes beyond simply putting forth more effort. There are extremely powerful, supernatural forces, spiritual beings that will come against you. Notice verse 13. Take up God's complete armor. Then when wickedness grabs its moment, your Bible might translate it, take up the whole armor of God that you may may be able to withstand in the day of evil. This is what I'm talking about. The moment when wickedness strikes. The day of evil. I'm talking about times of satanic attack that come with extraordinary force. When the, per- when the temptation is particularly strong. If you're in a season of ease right now in your Christian life, be thankful. If you're a new Christian and and the adrenaline is pushing you along and all is rosy, be thankful. If you're a child, a teenager, and you're still living within the safe womb of a Christian home, be thankful. But do not be misled. Do not be lulled into a false sense of security thinking that the battle is easy. There are times. Throughout the lives of God's people, when the powers of darkness concentrate. Periods of overwhelming temptation. The apostle Peter went through this. Jesus told him, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And right after that, sure enough. Peter was sifted. Job experienced this. Joseph, if you've read the story of Joseph, he experienced this in the house of his master. Jesus experienced this in our gospel reading. Did you notice at the end? Satan went away until an opportune time. And in these moments, so much is on the line. Look at verse 11. In these moments, we are facing schemes. Some Bibles translate trickery. See, evil rarely looks evil until it's finished its work. It gains entrance into our lives by appearing attractive, desirable, perfectly legitimate. This evil has nothing to do with the cartoon caricatures of some pitchfork-wielding demon with a bifurcated tail. If you've seen one of the greatest movies ever. Anybody know? Oh, brother, where art thou? Satan rarely shows up with sulfurous breath. But make no mistake, this is a dangerous moment. It is a temptation. It is an assault that is baited 
and camouflaged. It is a trap. And in these moments, the devil is trying to break into your life and reach the citadel of your heart to destroy you. Avenues that we leave open, he exploits. Now, it's important to know when you read Ephesians that Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 is not a new subject. It's a summary of chapters 4 and 5 and 6. All along, all through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and the beginning of 6, he's talking about spiritual warfare. He's talking about ways we leave windows open, avenues of exploitation to evil. He's talking about in chapter 4, when we stop resisting evil and we let our anger burst, it leaves a door open. Are you in a habit of uncontrolled anger? He talks about also uncontrolled speech, perverted speech, rude speech. He talks also about sexual immorality. These are the avenues Paul has walked through in chapter 4 and chapter 5 that leave the door open for Satan, it says, to gain a, in Greek, topos, topography, a place. Gain a fortress in your life where he makes a beachhead. We, when we indulge, in uncontrolled anger and uncontrolled speech and sexual immorality. When we indulge in these behaviors that he's carefully gone through, we give evil forces a power and authority in our lives that they were never supposed to have and that we cannot control. And they will exploit them to destroy us. The stakes are so high. You see, the devil does not set out to lure you into some petty failure. His goal is to shatter your Christian existence. So much is on the line. That's the first thing we have to be struck by in this passage. That it's all on the line. The second thing we need to be struck by is the enormous resources that are available to us for these moments. Four times in this passage, we're told that we can stand. We can withstand. We can stand firm in the face of the fierce assault. But notice the way for us to do this, the way to stand up and not fall. That's the goal here. Don't fall away. Don't fall away whether it's into civil, civic religion that's innocuous. And don't fall away whether it's into atheism and to denying God. Don't fall away. Stand strong. The goal, we can do this, but notice the way to victory. Verse 10 is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His power. So what we have here. This verb, be strong, is a particular type of verb. It's called a present, passive, imperative, second person plural. It's a command. It's an imperative in the passive mode. You're commanded to receive strength. Receive strength. 
Be strengthened in the Lord. Be empowered in the Lord. Draw down on God's power. We have to be made strong. Now, it's an imperative. It's not just impassive. You have to receive it. It's a command. You have to choose to receive it. It's not passive in the sense that you just wait around for it to happen. It's, it's a passive imperative. You have, to, you have to do what it takes to accept this strengthening. This is a supernatural struggle. You have to, you have to do certain things to grow strong in a certain kind of way. When we practice a relationship of dependence on God, we grow strong in God. This is a supernatural struggle. It's not about your physical health. It's not about your own internal fortitude. No matter how good a shape you're in physically, Satan can toast you. No matter how smart you are, you can be laid flat as a Christian. No, no matter how well educated you are, no matter how good you are at leadership, no matter how good you are at business or economics, or no matter how talented you are, that's not what this is about. The point here is that living the Christian life requires growing deeper in a dynamic relationship of dependence on the one who can strengthen you to resist an enemy that has totally outclassed you. Now, how do we do that? How do we grow dependent on God? How do we grow strong in the Lord? Well, this passage gives seven resources for growing strong in the strength of the Lord. If you're a Christian, there will be times in your life when you, pay, when you face intense seasons of supernatural opposition and what is at stake is whether you're going to keep living as a Christian or fall away. And in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 14 to 20, we are given seven powerful resources that if we will put them into practice, we will grow strong in our dependence on the Lord. The first one is truth, the belt of truth. The primary thing about the Christian message is that it's true. If it isn't, it's meaningless. Christianity works because it's true. It's not true because it works. It is true. Never give up on the sheer truth of Christianity. It's like a belt that holds everything else together. Second, a breastplate of righteousness. Two things here. On the one hand, it is a gift that God gives you when you have faith in His Son. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you believe in Him and you are loyal to Him, the Bible tells us that God gives us Jesus' righteousness. And now when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of His Son, not our victim narrative. Christianity is the canceling of your victim narrative. That's the first thing. Righteousness is a gift. When God looks at you, he's not looking at how much 
you've done, how hard you've worked at, how excellent you are. He's not looking at your victimization. He's looking at the righteousness of Jesus that clothes you. That's the first thing here. The the second thing here is that the breastplate of righteousness is not only a gift of being made righteous through Jesus, it is also the practice of righteousness. You see, when we practice sin, when we disregard God's call to a life of purity and integrity, we become vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. So put these two things together. What we see here is that That when we put our faith in Jesus and God forgives us of our sins and clothes us and justifies us and makes us the righteousness of Jesus, when when that happens, it flows out of our life as we begin to live lives of integrity and character. And these two things, our holy behavior and our holy status, if you're very well read and you've read the great Tolkien himself, it is like mithril. It is an impenetrable male shirt, a breastplate. These two things woven together. Number three, another tremendous resource that it tells us we have. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. If you want to be strong on your feet in the face of the attack of Satan, it's critical that you have received the good news into your own life. That you have accepted this news that is better than any other news. The news that in Jesus Christ, God took on all of the evil of the world, brought it into himself on the cross. It killed him, but then in victory, he rose from the dead. And when you put your faith in that, you are made at peace with God and at peace. And you can live at peace with others. And when you have received that into your life, it gives you strong footing in the face of the evil day. This is the firmest possible foothold to fight against evil. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, you are a goner. You can't handle Satan. Number four. The fourth resource is the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, what is this? This is two things. It is belief in Jesus as the risen Lord and utter loyalty to him. It's both believing the story of Jesus that the Bible tells and radical, utter loyalty to him. That's the faith that Paul says functions as a shield. It'll protect you when the enemy hurls flaming arrows at you. What are these arrows that the enemy throws at us? That faith, belief in Jesus, belief in the story about him, and utter loyalty to him. What are the arrows that this this shields us against? Doubt. Despair. Out of nowhere, evil thoughts entering your mind. Thoughts, accusation of sin that brings an intense feeling of guilt when you've already confessed your sin. 
These are the flaming arrows, the fierce temptation to anger. Paul talks about in chapter 4, the overwhelming desire for sexual immorality. He talks about in chapter 5, paralyzing fear. Adverse circumstances. These are the arrows that Satan throws at you with a goal of knocking you flat so that you stop living a, a real Christian life. Sharp temptation that will burn you up if you let it catch you. Personal tragedy. Some of you have lived through tragedy that was an intense assault. That, that you knew there was this moment where the undertow could pull you down. For some people, it's the seasons of triumph that tempt you to arrogance, to pride. To no longer trusting and walking and depending on God. These are the arrows. When you exercise a believing loyalty to God, it is as if you have a shield around you. Believing loyalty is a shield. Just like Jesus in that critical moment that we heard a few moments ago when the attack came on him with extraordinary force, when the temptation was particularly strong and the spiritual struggle was violent, Jesus practiced a deep, fierce, believing loyalty to God and his kingdom. And it was that faith that quenched the flaming arrows of Satan. Number five, a fifth resource. Take up the helmet of salvation. He, he's not saying, hey guys, you need to get saved. You're not saved. No, he's saying, you need to know what it means that you're saved. You need to take that salvation. You need to appropriate your salvation constantly through faith. Knowing you need to know that you belong to the family of the risen Messiah. And that you therefore have already been rescued from the ultimate enemy. So all of these other enemies have at the end of the day defeat written over them. We must not doubt or fear or be ashamed that we're saved. Number six, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, in this situation, Paul is using a particular phrase to describe not the Bible. He's not talking about the Word of God as the Bible. He's talking about the gospel. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to go all into it's a very technical thing that's going on in the Greek, but he's clearly here talking about the gospel. He's talking about a great resource you have is telling the gospel to people. This old mantra, um, share the gospel, use words if you have to, baloney. You have to. You have to name the gospel. You have to talk about 
the gospel. You have to tell the story of Jesus, that Jesus is God's way of dealing with evil in this world. And he did it by bringing the kingdom. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived and his life and his death and his resurrection has shattered the darkness and established the kingdom. And you've got to figure out how to tell that. And it's complicated. It's not easy. It's easy to tell it when nobody's asking you any questions. But when you're actually in a conversation, you've got to do this. And you know what? This is a spiritually powerful thing, proclaiming the gospel. Faithful telling of the gospel in the realm of darkness is the way God delivers people from darkness and cleanses them and heals them and sets them free. And in the gospel, it's not just because it's reliable information. The gospel, when we tell the story of Jesus as the arrival of the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection, when we tell that story, God's power fills it and defeats darkness. The seventh resource, verses 18 through 20, given more attention than any of the other resources, is prayer. This is tough for moderns because you see, if you've minimized the supernatural, you stink at praying. If you stink at praying, it's because you've been indoctrinated into a modernism that maybe if you don't discount the devil, you keep him in the flannel board world. Just goofy. You don't really know how to incorporate that into modern living. We pray. We pray. This is the resource that gets more attention than any of the others. And think about what I've just talked about. I've talked about the gospel. I've talked about faith. I've talked about righteousness. I mean, all of these things are amazing. But then when Paul ends it all, he ends it all really going into prayer. Why? Because when we pray, God acts differently than if we don't pray. Prayer accomplishes things that we can't accomplish any other way. And yes, it is a mystery. It's an utter mystery. Nobody knows how it works. As soon as you start getting into some kind of metaphysical analysis of prayer and start trying to debate and think about free will and sovereignty and if God would have done it anyway, you've lost. Here's two things about prayer. There is a deep mystery. We don't know how it works. And it is utterly practical. Those two things are held together. It works. It is a deep mystery and it is also utterly practical. One of the great Christian leaders of the 20th century, Archbishop William Temple, declared that when, whatever anybody else would say to him about prayer, at the end of the day, he noticed when he prayed, coincidences happened. And when he stopped praying, coincidences stopped happening. Earlier this week, I was reading a theologian who was talking about all of this. He said, it's like the great golfer who, when someone accused him of being lucky, totally agreed with them and commented that he's noticed the more he practices, the luckier he gets. <laughs> yes, we don't know how to explain this. Yes, prayer is mysterious and yet it works. But always remember, not only does prayer work, it is hard work. 
It requires intentional set-apart time. I'm not talking about the little Mickey Mouse prayers that dot around the edges of your life like some kind of kitsch decoration. The kind of prayer Paul is talking about here is hard work. It requires submission and sacrifice and reverence. And it can't be reduced to just a few moments of sleepy meditation at the end of the day or the first kind of sleepy utterances to God as you're coming into consciousness at the beginning of the day. No, look at verse 18. You need to stay awake and keep alert if you're to engage properly in prayer. If you're going to take prayer seriously, you need to plan it. You need to make a plan for it. Now, you got your own temperament. I got my own temperament. I mean, some people find that a list is helpful for them. A list of who I'm going to pray for on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Divvying out who we pray for, what we pray for. This is very helpful. Huge seasons of my life, decades of my life, I've used lists to organize my prayer. And then I go through seasons where I'm not using lists. You've got to find a way to plan it and to work it into your life. I want to close by drawing your attention to something Jesus said. Look at, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit, this is Jesus talking. If, if, if you're not sure where it is, just go left a few pages. Um, if you need the table of contents, that can help you find it. Luke chapter 11, verse 24. Here Jesus said, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless topos, places. Same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4 about how uncontrolled anger creates a topos, a place. It passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. CJ is a campus minister at InterVarsity. He's been doing Christian leadership and discipleship for many, many years. I've been doing it for, I think, like 26 years or so now. I can tell you that I know a whole list of people that the last state of them is worse than the first. They are worse now than when they became a Christian. There is a lot on the line. There is a lot on the line. There is far more wrong with this world than the sum total of all that stuff we call sin. There is an evil and it is impossible to pin down on an individual or a group of individuals. There is an evil that rarely looks like evil and we have to take It's seriously. But Ephesians is not meant to strike fear in your heart. It's meant to embolden you. The stakes are high. But the resources are more than adequate. But you have to receive them. You have to practice these resources so that you grow strong in the Lord. So that when the tricky day of evil comes, You can stand and not fall away.